When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello there, Ashley Banfield here, and this is Rising Tide, the place where I bring some of the greatest mentor minds to you. If you care about your craft and you want to be better at what you do, I want to help you with that. You know, it's easy to assume that you need an Ivy League education to really make it big. But each month, I feature VIP mentors who are leaders in their industry, and they say, that's not true. They're going to prove to you that you don't have to have highbrow connections to create your own personal best. And they've agreed to share their tips, their secrets, and their career advice with you. This is Rising Tide. Hi, everybody. Welcome. Welcome, welcome, welcome. As we're continuing to let people into the waiting room, it's great to see all your smiling faces. Yay. I'm always glad when we're on Zooms to see people because I think all too often we're, uh, we default to the name screen and you just kind of feel like you're on, in a meeting by yourself. So this is delightful to see everybody's shiny, happy faces. And thank you for joining. This is our third installment of uh, Rising Tide. And I am thrilled to welcome the inimitable Lisa Ling. I, you don't even need an introduction, Lisa, but I'm going to give you one anyway, in case some of the younger folks may have missed some of that uh, other stuff that you were doing way back when, when you were traipsing around uh, the most dangerous places in the world. Lisa, if you don't already know, is the executive producer and the host of This Is Life on CNN. It's one of the best shows out there, and not just because I used to work there. It's because I really do love it as a viewer. She's also EP of that show, and she also hosts the series Takeout for HBO Max. Um, she was EP and host of Our America on OWN for five seasons. She was a field correspondent for the Oprah Winfrey Show. Uh, she was a contributor to ABC News Nightline. She's basically been in all the places it's hard to get a visa, like the Congo, India, Uganda, North Korea. Uh, before that, uh, she was the first female host of National Geographic Explorer. And she did something that Anderson Cooper did when he got his start. She was a correspondent for Channel One News, where um, at the ripe young age of 21, uh, decided, I guess, along with uh, her family, that it was okay to go to Afghanistan at that age <laughs> and cover uh, the, the war in Afghanistan. She, of course, went on to be um, the, uh, the co-host of The View on ABC, where so many more people were um, treated to, to Lisa's journalism and her abilities. And then, you know, for good measure, decided to just write, you know, incredible books <laughs> with all her spare time. Uh, she's the co-author of Mother, Sister, Daughter, Bride, Rituals of Womanhood, and also the book Somewhere Inside, One Sister's Captivity in North Korea, and The Other's Fight to Bring Her Home, a story I covered when I was at, uh, at CNN. For good measure, um, it's not just journalism and it's not just the field of journalism that recognizes Lisa. President Obama appointed Lisa to the Commission on White House Fellows in 2014. You could retire if you <laughs> wanted to. You pretty much checked all the boxes, Lisa. Here's the big question. 
Do you feel accomplished or do you feel there's so much more to do? That's a great question. Because when you read my bio, it's like, oh my God, I forgot I did all those things because I, I have been working in this business for so long. Um, and I did get a, a, a pretty early start working for, for Channel One News. But honestly, Ashley, I, I feel like I'm just beginning in so many ways. I mean, I recognize that uh, we work in an ageist business. Um, and let's face it, there aren't a lot of women who are upwards of 50 uh, who are who are regular fixtures of television. But in terms of how I feel and the things that I want to do, I, I don't necessarily want to be on TV forever. And I don't know if audience will want me to be on TV forever, but there are still so many things that I am interested in and that I want to do. And, and so many stories that need to be told, things that are happening now, things that have happened in the past and, and, and things about what our future could look like that I would just be so honored to be able to have a part in trying to tell. You know that, I'm so glad you brought that up right off the bat because it's like, it's sort of my uh, my battle charge, the, the whole ageist women issue in television. I'm 54, I shout it from the rooftop for a reason because I don't want anyone to ever think that you have to hide it. Uh, that said, I use every trick in the book, you know, lighting, <laughs> makeup, and you name it, appointments with whomever, because I am I am fearful of the real world uh, that that we live in, and the real world is your real your real paycheck. So you're you're spot on with that acknowledgement, Lisa. Let me start with a question uh, from Catherine uh, Fossell or Fossil. I hope I have it right. Um, in Spartanburg, South Carolina. Uh, Catherine asks, after your work in Afghanistan or any of the traumatic events that you've covered, have you experienced any mental health challenges? And if so, how do you cope? It's a great question. And I have been working on emotional <laughs> stories where people have shared the, the depths of their hearts um, and experiences with me and certainly been to my fair share of places that could be considered contentious and, 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 and had a couple of fairly close calls. Um, I realized quite early on in my life and my career that it was really important for me to have outlets to talk to. And so I got my little self into therapy <laughs> in my early twenties. Um, and it, it, I, I think I was helped by the fact that I was, you know, I'd been working as a journalist for eight years for Channel One News, and then I was suddenly thrust onto this daytime talk show called The View um, in my in my mid twenties, and it was such a jarring transition. And 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 really, the women on The View taught me a lot about really feeling comfortable and taking care of myself. Joy Behar in particular um, is someone who has always been a big advocate for therapy. And she kind of planted the seed when I first started on The View. And I got myself into therapy and man, did it open up <laughs> the door to so many things, um, including my relationship with my mother, who uh, who left my sister and me when I was young, when I was seven. And she was someone that I always, I mean, I loved her deeply. She was my mom, but also harbored some resentment for her throughout my life because she wasn't there. And that process 
really compelled me to really want to get to know my mom and understand her story and her background. And so I ended up taking her to Taiwan to go back to her roots, which was a very traumatizing experience because I just had no idea about the things that she had experienced in her homeland. But, but that whole process of discovery about my roots and my mother's roots, I think had a huge impact on what I would go on to try and do in my work, which is to really sort of dig deep and, um, and encourage people to almost revisit things in their lives that have been hard, in some cases that have been traumatic, but to help them in some ways process and, and, and be a listening ear um, and, and try to figure out how to, um, how to sort of implement the things that they had learned and the things that they had experienced into the life that they're living now. And so it's a long way to answer a question about whether I experienced, you know, P PTSD or trauma in the field, but in so many ways, so many of these experiences that I've had throughout my life and my career have really connected, um, they, they've connected to one another and have kind of propelled me onto the place where I am today. Uh, you know, I, I don't even think we would have had this conversation, you know, 10 years ago um, or been this candid, right, about uh, the, the benefits of therapy. I think it makes you a better journalist, period. I mean, certainly if you're um, if you're not processing thoughts properly, you're probably not covering those same kinds of people who are processing things uh, properly. So thank you for that. That can well, It's true, Ashley. And we, we talk so much about mental health these days and, and and we should be talking about about mental health, because if you if you don't have sort of sound mental health or, or, or you're not healthy, um, your mental health hasn't been taken care of, it can affect every aspect of your life. And we're really, really starting to recognize that and take pains to addressing those really important issues. I mean, our mental health is as important, if not more important than our physical health, I believe. Yeah. It also affects relationships, right? And what is our business all about? <laughs> it's about relationships because you can't communicate properly unless you're forging the appropriate relationships with those you cover, those you work with, the teammates, all the rest. So I hear you. And, and I'm really glad you're saying that to, to those who have an opportunity to foster that part of their overall well-being, because I think that will make people better journalists, uh, you know, hand over fist. Okay, we're going to go to Augusta, Georgia. Kim Vickers asks, for those of us who can only dream about it, what is it like to be a foreign correspondent? Well, it's been a long time since I was boots on the ground overseas, but, uh, and I and I did start quite young. I mean, I was covering war in my early 20s, I covered the civil war in Afghanistan at 21. I was covering drug wars throughout South America, um, also in my early 20s before I went to The View. Um, stories about globalization uh, in in Iran and in China. And look, I, I had the time of my life when I was um, overseas because the one thing, I really struggled in the classroom um, I was later diagnosed with ADD, but being confined within the, the, the walls of a classroom was very stifling for me. I've always had a, a just an innate curiosity and have always wanted to explore and experience things that were different from my own existence, but I never had the opportunity until I started working for Channel One, and that show just sent me 
out into the world. And what I will say about being outside of your comfort zone, and you don't need to be in another country to do so. You can be in your community and visit a place that you are unfamiliar with. Um, but what I will say is that, you know, your senses are heightened and you are acutely aware of your surroundings, everything that you taste, everything that you observe um, is heightened. And being out in the world allows me to just feel so alive. Um, and, and I remember as a young journalist thinking to myself, I would love to be able to remember every day that I am alive. Now, sometimes I can barely remember what I did yesterday. <laughs> um, but when you, when, you, when you leave your comfort zone, whether it's to another country or to um, the community next to you that you are unfamiliar with, um, I believe that you are certainly more attuned to your surroundings and also your interactions with people. I think that you 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 become compelled to listen more intently, um, to really um, try and understand people better because again, their their experiences and their lives are different from yours. And so for me, um, being able to be that explorer um, and work with also teams who were accompanying me on the trips, just really, it became just really in, in, intoxicating. And I think that travel, it became the best education conceivable for me. And I would never undermine the importance of a, of a college education. I mean, that's, it's something that, that I think is essential, but traveling for me, um, just expanded that education so profoundly. And it also allowed me to expand the dialogue. You know, I mean, these days, the job market can be challenging. But having that experience of being able to immerse yourself and interact with people outside of your comfort zone, I think, will allow you to expand the dialogue um, beyond how people who never got that experience will be able to do. I always loved my my foreign correspondent teams because they came from all these different countries and cultures and, uh, you know, you got to actually live with them, you know, in a work environment, which I thought was really mind expanding. I also remember Lisa coming back and thinking, I do not mind paying taxes and I do not mind potholes anymore. <laughs> you really do get a huge appreciation for everything we have here when you've been to some of the most troubled places, right? Well, it's a great point, Ashley. And people used to ask me all the time, like, how do you go to these dangerous places? And I would say to them that for me, I will drop into a place for a couple of weeks max, but the people who live under those kinds of stressors and, 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 yeah. and circumstances and situations, they have to do so every day of their lives. And so if I can somehow convey a fraction of their story um, responsibly, that's what I really try hard to do. Oh, it's true. And, and you know something Kim said, for those of us who can only dream about it, I do say, Kim, one thing that Christiana Mampur once said, once she had um, her son, that she wasn't, a, you know, making decisions recklessly to go into these dangerous places. She, she made calculated decisions. They became more calculated. So you, you still may have the freedoms to do that regardless of the life circumstances. You just, you know, the, the metric and the formula just be, becomes a little bit different, at least in, in Christian's purview and certainly in mine as well. I, I wouldn't go, you know, spending a year um, in Afghanistan again. But, um, okay, Gina from Baltimore. 
Is there something you have not done in your career yet that you would like to do? There's so many things um, that I I would like to do. I mean, I I, I want to write a book of fiction. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I that that's what I I I like to read the most uh, is fiction, and I have an idea that I have started working on, but I know it's going to take a lot of time. Um, but it's it, it's actually based on on my my mom's family story. Um, and there's some scripted projects that I have also started working on that are based on historical accounts that I would love to see made into scripted series. So there's so many things and so many worlds that that I'm still wanting and hoping to be able to explore. Um, even though I, I, I am nearing the age of retirement for some people, I really do feel like you know, I, I feel like in some ways I'm, I'm, I'm just beginning. And, and I always have just, I've loved to be a fly on the wall and just absorb as much as I can about so many different kinds of, of professions and so many different kinds of lifestyles and things. Well, you're a great observer. Um, and you're also a great observer of something that's hard to be observed and that's your own family. I, I remember watching your story about your dad um, and I was really intrigued with how you, again, as a, as a reporter, especially as a TV reporter, because stakes are different when cameras are rolling, you navigated that line like, hey, this is my closest family, but this is a critical story that everybody needs to know. And that's a super difficult thing to do. And I was very proud of you um, for the work that you did. Okay, Ryan Garza, he is in Chicago. He's on the call right now. Uh, he says, what is your most memorable food journalism experience? Oh, Ryan. Um, I mean, I just finished uh, uh, shooting a show that's airing on or, or that's on HBO Max now called Takeout. And I had never been someone who who had this desire to do a food show because I'm not a chef. And 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 furthermore, I don't even cook. <laughs> um, but food, I think we can all recognize is such an incredible cultural unifier. And it really has the ability to bring people together. And I think it can even open the door to learning about people and cultures and traditions and countries. And so working on this episode, I mean, working on this series takeout for me, one gave me the opportunity to eat the most incredible foods. Um, I may not be a cook, but I'm definitely a foodie. But it also introduced me to these incredible buried histories of Asian Americans in this country. And as, as someone who grew up Asian American, who never learned anything about Asian American history in school, and also observing the last couple of years in this really devastating increase on attacks and scapegoating of, of Asians in the wake of COVID, um, it really gave me a chance to to take this journey and learn about the incredible contributions um, that that Asian people have have made in this country, the the severe levels of discrimination and the struggle, but also the resilience and the triumphs of this community. And it was using food um, as this delicious device to be able to have those experiences and bring these stories to the fore 
about a community whose voices really have been quite absent as far as education is concerned, but also when you think about popular culture and how Asian people have been portrayed um, in in American pop culture, you know, the, the, the Asian people have in so many ways, like, you know, played these peripheral roles and very rarely had leading roles in, in media at all. And so this has been a, a chance to, um, to, to really take that journey for me as a journalist, as an Asian American, um, as, as an observer, um, and as a student really of history that, that, that should be told. And, and, you know, I do believe that one of the reasons why it's been easier, I think, to scapegoat people in the Asian community is because our stories haven't been told. And when your community is absent from history, you know, the stories and contributions of your community is totally absent from American history, it becomes so easy to overlook and even dehumanize an entire population and continue to see this population as not belonging or being a being a perpetual foreigner. And so while the show Takeout has been so much fun and illuminating, it's taken on um, a, a kind of an urgent tone too, because I think it's really important and imperative for people to be acquainted um, with diverse histories um, that, 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 that make up this tapestry that is called America. Did you get much of a chance when we were um, at CNN together with um, Anthony Bourdain to, to chat with Tony about his work and what he was sort of, I, mean, I kind of think of him as a verb now, you know, are you Bourdaining, are you channeling your inner Bourdain when you're doing this new series? Um, I would be lying if I said that I, I, I don't channel him, especially because I, two of the people who work on the show, in fact, the showrunner was very, very close to Tony and worked on Parts Unknown for many, many years and even worked on No Reservations. And, and Tony really did something extraordinary, which is that he, he brought the world together and allowed us to, he allowed, it, he allowed us into the homes and into the lives of, of people in different parts of the world and using this device of food. Um, and he, he did it so brilliantly. And so while our show, I think, feels, feels very different, um, you know, there's, there's definitely, you know, an homage to him in, in, in so many of the episodes, um, particularly because I work so closely with people who worked right alongside him. I'm actually going to skip ahead to some questions that because I know that as you were just speaking with me about the um, the API issues of the past, there's a great question from Deanna Moore from Tampa, Florida, and it's on that uh, it's in that vein. So she asks, what is the most difficult part of being an AAPI journalist during the rise in violence and vitriol towards the AAPI community? How should local news organizations address the situation? And on a personal note, Deanna says, I worked at The View from 2003 to 2007, and I was disappointed I never got to work with you. Oh, yeah. I left, I think, in, 2000, in 2003, I think. Um, hi, Deanna. Thanks for the question. So it's, it's, it's been horrifying. It's been terrible. It's been terrifying to, to be an Asian American at all right now. But as someone with a bit of a profile, I've just felt compelled to use my platform to speak out against it. I mean, if I don't use my platform, who will, right? I mean, that's why I have a platform to speak out 
on behalf of people who are being victimized. And I think that that when the 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 attacks on Asians started in the wake of COVID, I think it came as such a shock to people. Like I can't believe that 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 people are targeting you know Asian Americans about something they had nothing to do with. But but then again, when you look at at history, you will see that there has been a pattern of scapegoating Asian people in this country that spans more than a century, which is again why it's so essential for me and for people who who have a bit of a profile to keep continuing to you know beat that drum and to to speak out um, against this discrimination and also demand that our stories be told because I do think that especially for young kids you know when kids are young this is when they develop empathy and when they are aware of the things that communities have experienced but also the incredible triumphs that communities have experienced that's how kids build empathy and grow into empathetic adults. These are things that can be taught. And so having a multifaceted, multidimensional education for young people, I think is essential. And which is why it just like, it, 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 it infuriates me <laughs> to no end this debate over what history should be taught in schools. You know, because of the concern that it might make some kids feel bad. That's not the, that 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 is not the intention. The intention is for kids to be aware of the things that people have experienced, so that they don't repeat history themselves. So that they will speak up and stand up for people, for marginalized people who might not have an opportunity to have their stories told. You know, my eight-year-old um, is obviously in elementary school and. Not too long ago, a kid called her um, a, a chink in school. <laughs> and without missing a beat, her best friend said, I will not be a bystander to this. And she went and told the teacher about, you know, what her best friend had just experienced. And to me, that was an example of phenomenal parenting, you know, that her best friend had learned from her parents that we stand up for people and that you don't, um, you know, you don't make fun of people, you don't bully people, you don't tease people, you don't, uh, you know, uh, antagonize kids about their race or, or anything. These are the kinds of things that we need to be teaching to our kids so that they will stand up for each other, right? And be more sensitive and again empathetic to the struggles that people have i mean i i you know the, this 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 debate over what's being called you know crt <laughs> critical race theory to me it's just it's it's ludicrous it's absolutely ludicrous the importance of teaching diverse histories diverse american histories to our kids is absolutely essential and if we had had that when we were growing up, if our generation were exposed to diverse histories, we wouldn't be in the situation that we are in right now. I am convinced. Yeah. I, I'm shocked that your daughter's friend knew even what bystander meant. So you're right about uh, parenting that uh, really goes to the roots of, of that issue. Um, I'm going to take you to Anchorage, Alaska, where Julie Hopkins has this question for you. Actually, you know what, it's that Julie Hopkins has the same question. It's been a tough couple of years for the AAPI community. Um, the world feels 
more polarized than ever. Do you think food and culture play a part in bridging those divisions and how can journalists improve coverage to help with that healing? So it's a, it's a vestige of the last question with a little bit more. Yeah, absolutely. Because, I mean, we all love Asian food now, right? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> the one thing that I think has become undeniable in America is that we have an appetite for Asian food and not just Chinese or Japanese food, right? But but our, our palates have evolved. And I think there's an incredible opportunity um, to tell tell these stories through through the lens of food. You know, if you if you do love our our food, right? If you do love Asian food, please take the time to know the stories of the people who are making the food. Because I'll tell you something: as someone who is learning them myself, they're fascinating and they're inspiring and they're examples of um, resilience and 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 everything that being an American is about. So yes, I think there's an incredible opportunity and I've even seen it myself. I mean, the response to our show takeout has been so overwhelming. I've had so many Asian Americans message me to say that for the first time they feel seen, that their stories are actually, that, that like being able to see their stories on television um, for the world to see has allowed them to feel seen. And I mean, I was just on Ryan Seacrest's show and he was telling me how much he loves the show. And, um, you know, uh, um, uh, Jimmy Kimmel was, you know, sending me suggestions for future episodes. And so, you know, while my hope is that the Asian community will embrace the show and feel seen, I'm so excited to know that that it has really resonated with so many people outside of the Asian community as well. My personal hope is that you can find out what happened to the Saigon Grill on the Upper West Side of New York. It went away and it was the most popular restaurant. It was the, I mean, seriously, I'm not, this is not hyperbole. It truly was the most popular restaurant on the Upper West Side of uh, New York. And then poof, they were gone and I miss it so much. (laughs) Okay, Jackson Gosnell from Greenville, South Carolina, young journalist, and he's like a terrific kid. I've talked to him at length. He says, hi, Lisa, Uh, with your extensive background, I'm curious, how do you make sure you're not selling yourself short when pursuing other opportunities? And also, what's the best advice someone has ever given you? I love that question. Well, thank you, Jackson, for the great question. How do you know that you're not selling yourself short? Hmm. I mean, I think that you know you have to be your authentic self and 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 sell yourself accordingly um know your your abilities feel confident in your abilities um you know if if you are someone who you know works hard then i don't think that that would be selling yourself short <laughs> you know if you're someone who who um you know who who may not uh you know like to extend that effort don't tell people that you work really hard and that you will work off hours and uh you know do th- promise things that you might not be able to deliver on you know i i think it's so important that you be authentic about what what your capabilities what your abilities are but also that you really, really want to learn and that you want to be that sponge and absorb as much as you can. You know, I, I didn't grow up with a lot of money um, and my parents were divorced and I, I didn't really have those adult role models who were, who were advocating for me in my home. I mean, I had some great teachers. Um, so I, I knew that I wanted to pursue a career in television 
um, broadcast television, uh, broadcast journalism in particular, because Connie Chung um, did it. And I thought if, if she could do it, maybe, maybe I could do it too. Like she allowed me to, to know what could be possible for a girl who looked like me and who didn't look like a lot of the people in my community. But over the summer, I would, I, when we had telephone books with yellow pages, <laughs> I would go through the phone book and I found every TV outlet and PR firm um, in Sacramento. And in the summer when I would spend, um, uh, I would spend my summers in Los Angeles with my mom, I did the same thing. And I called, you know, every PR firm, every game show, every, you know, women, the women in film organizations. And I just said, you know, I'm in, I'm in high school and I, could I come and spend a few hours here every week? My mom will drop me off and I'll get your coffee. I, you know, I, 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 I foregoed hanging out with friends or playing to just want to want to be somewhere where I can learn from people who were doing the things that I, I, I was interested in. And so being willing to just do anything and everything is something that is really, really important because that's how you learn. Um, my very first TV job, I was 16. I was chosen to host a teen magazine show, but it was, it was produced by a local news affiliate in Sacramento, California. So I asked them if I could intern in the newsroom. I, you know, so I would go before my high school classes, I would drive to the newsroom. I would run the teleprompters and sit with the writers at about five o'clock in the morning. And then I would go to my classes and then I would go back there after school um, and hang out with the writers. And that's where I learned how a newsroom worked and how the news biz business worked. And so if you don't have access to people, you know, if you don't know someone who knows someone, um, you know, I, I, I was unabashed about just making cold calls to people because you'll get a lot of doors slammed in your face and people saying, no, no, we don't, we don't have those kinds of opportunities available to you, but you might very well have someone who says, yes, you know, you can certainly spend a couple of hours here. You might be getting my coffee, but if that's what you're willing to do, then come aboard. Yeah, I remember well uh, hearing my mom, I think, said to me at some point, you're you are never too good for anything. And that stuck with me because, you know, this business can be a lot of this. Right. And if you always think you're on the top, you know, you're not going to get back on that coaster. Um, but to that point about doors slamming in your face, uh, gosh, Lisa, when I was about 23 or 24, I remember the CBC in Vancouver, I would uh you know, every every month or two, I would drop a line to the news director saying, you know, could I just meet you in person? Can I just hand my tape off to you in person? And I finally received a letter from him saying, well, persistence, I remember it. Well, persistence is the hallmark of a good reporter. I must ask you to stop contacting me. <laughs> and years later, Peter Mansbridge, who is like the Peter Jennings, you know, kind of um, he took it to the board of the CBC saying, and she's in the U.S. now. So we lost one. That was the dumbest thing you could have ever done to somebody who was so willing, you know, to do any job um, to just send her away forever. You know, yeah, that's right. That letter. And that's what I'm saying. Like you will get doors slammed in your face and you have mm -hmm. to have a thick skin about it, but you just have to be persistent. And there there will likely be someone who could use the help getting their coffee <laughs> or possibly you know, eventually writing press releases um, or even, you know, doing more. 
So it's 3.35 and I've already kept you five minutes later than I had promised. I had so many more questions though, but oh my goodness. Sorry, um, a lot. <laughs> no, you're, no, you're so great. I mean, every piece of this is just so incredibly valuable. You know, there, there are a lot of people who on, on this call um, are our age and then a lot who are Jackson's age, really young. And I just wish I had had opportunities like this to listen to people like you I could have skipped a lot of hiccups and, and uh, hurdles, you know, <laughs> it would have been really nice to know some of these, these gems of wisdom. So Lisa, I wish you such uh, remarkable success with the new show and with all the, the book, the okay, the fictional book that you're going to write. Okay, <laughs> Not what I expected to hear, but I love that you're just branching out so far and vast. And I thank you so much for, again, your magnanimous um, you know, advice for everybody today and, and being so candid. Well, Ashley, thank you for taking time out of your schedule to provide this for people. I hope that I provided a, a few nuggets for people, um, but I really appreciate that everyone took the time out of their busy schedules to um, to hang out with us today. I so, so appreciate it. And I, I wish you all much success and health, good health and have a great day. <laughs>forget you can watch me every night on news nation at 10 p.m eastern 9 central and 7 p.m on the west coast don't know where to watch us just go to www.joinnn.com enter your zip code and the channel finder will show you where you can find us on your broadcast dial but don't forget we're also on all the streamers hulu roku youtube tv This is Ashley Banfield, and thanks so much for joining me for this edition of Rising Tide. This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working... The HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.